My sheep know my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I could stop right there. Of course, I won't. As we here are on the fourth Sunday of Easter, the Good Shepherd, sometimes called Good Shepherd Sunday, um, if you hadn't been able to tell yet from the readings or from the hymns, today is Good Shepherd Sunday, and we're talking about Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And as we look at the text today, there's just two lessons that I want us to take from it. Number one is the lesson of the gospel as a challenge. That to know the Good Shepherd is to be disliked. To know the Good Shepherd is to be disliked. And number two, that to know the Good Shepherd is to have the assurance of eternal life. To know the Good Shepherd is to have the assurance of eternal life. So a challenge here and now, but the assurance in eternity. What a wonderful thing that is, for the here and now is quickly passing. To the Jews, shepherds are one of those folkloric, if that's a word, folklore type that occurs throughout their scriptures in the Old Testament. And as I was doing my research today, this week, not today, as I was doing my research this week, I was trying to think about what is something that, that actually would resonate, would actually connect with people today in America that would be like the Good Shepherd. Because you know what? When we look at the Good Shepherd, it's so colored by cheesy Christian art that it's lost the original biblical meaning. And so as I was sitting there this week thinking about this, I had an idea and hopefully it's okay to do this in the pulpit. The good shepherd is to the Hebrews as the cowboy is to Americans. The good shepherd to the Hebrews is like the cowboy to, the, to Americans. And I get my Stetson hat out once in a while, even though I'm, I'm, a, I'm in the city now, I come from the country and uh, like to put it on, but I won't for the rest. I just, I just don't feel comfortable having it on in the pulpit here. All right. <laughs> it struck me that there's actually a lot more than just being a folklore, um, just being folklore that a good shepherd and a good cowboy have in common. To the Jews, shepherds were also leaders. They were bold truth-tellers. They were uncompromising in their ways, sometimes to their own detriment. And whether leading sheep or men, they had to have a plan, they had to be anchored in God, and they had to be tough. The idea comes to us, I think, in a cowboy, where we have men who are also anchored tough, truth-telling, uncompromising. Of course, another part of that in the American culture is that usually the good cowboy is also flawed, right? It struck me this week as I was watching an old cowboy movie called Ride the High Country. 
1962. It's a, it's a Peckinpah film starring Randolph Scott and Joel McCree. It's actually the last um, film that uh, Randolph Scott was in before he retired. And it struck me the comparison between shepherds and cowboys and how much they have in common. You see, like a shepherd, a cowboy is a little on the outside of society. He's a little isolated. There's a reason his song is Home on the Range, where the deer and the antelope play. He's a little rough around the edges. Sometimes, well, let's be honest, often, he's embarrassing in polite company because he says it like he sees it. But like the shepherd was to the Jews, so the cowboy is to the Americans, a leader and someone who has confidence and a plan. To the Jews, shepherds were outcasts. Yes, that's true. They were on the outskirts of society, but also they are associated with great kings like David. Likewise, in America, it's not coincidence that every president since at least Harry Truman back in the 1950s has worn cowboy boots while in office. Did you know that? At some point, every president has worn cowboy boots in office. There's their function, shepherds and cowboys, is similar too, whether it's to a flock or to a herd. They keep the flock together. They keep them moving. They provide food, water, and shelter, and they protect them from thieves and other enticements. So why all this talk about cowboys and shepherds? Well, because it's hard to understand the significance of anyone being called a shepherd in the Bible, or Jesus calling himself the good shepherd, without talking about this. The closest archetype we have is that cowboy, that good cowboy. And we see the image of a shepherd for their culture as early as Moses. Look at our text today, Numbers chapter 27, verse 12. We see the shepherd talked about. It's on the inside of your scripture insert, if you have that. Or you can open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 27, verse 12. We see the Lord talking to Moses. And those of you that are familiar with the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, or have been in my 930 class recently, you know that this passage read today is kind of bittersweet, isn't it? Like Randolph Scott's character in Ride the High Country or as a retired aging marshal who's tempted by gold, so here... In Exodus, Moses is a good man, but flawed. And nevertheless, he's used by God, but there are consequences that come with his sin. You see, Moses' biggest sin was one of frustration, rebellion, and glory-seeking. And it kept him from entering into the promised land. Look at Numbers 27, our first reading. And chapter, uh, chapter 27, verses 12 through 23, the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled failing to uphold me as holy as the waters before their eyes. 
the, these are the waters of Meribah and Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So what's going on there? What's Moses' flaw here? Well, in the wilderness of Zin, Moses was told to take Aaron, his brother's staff, and to speak to the rock because God's people were thirsty and without water. But instead of speaking to the rock, Aaron and Moses strike the rock. And then they claim to be the ones bringing about the water rather than giving glory to God. For this, Moses and Aaron are told they will not enter into Canaan. This is back from Numbers chapter 20. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he has showed himself holy. Do you see... Moses here is relating that passage and what happened in today's reading. But God does allow Moses to look at the land before he dies. Despite Moses' flaws, Moses is a good shepherd, and he's concerned with his people. He's concerned that they be led. He's concerned that as he goes, someone comes behind him and cares for them. Again, look at our first lesson either in your Bibles or the insert, verse 15 this time. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be, what? As sheep that have no shepherd. You see, Moses pleads with the Lord, Lord, these people need a shepherd. As flawed as I was, (laughs) look at how I was able to lead them with the Lord, of course, and and look at how hard it was to lead them up until this point in the Old Testament. They are stiff-necked people. But Moses here intercedes for them as his last request. And now... Look at today's gospel, John chapter 10, verse 22 in your Bibles, or you can look at it on page 4 in your scripture inserts. John chapter chapter 10, verse 22. What's going on here? Jesus, the Lord, is walking along in the temple. And... It's interesting, though you may have just glossed over it, that this is the Feast of Dedication. What's the Feast of Dedication in our modern calendar? It's still on the calendar. It's on the church calendar, but it's, well, it's actually, it's more on the secular calendar. You know what the Feast of Dedication is? Our Jewish brethren celebrate it right around Christmas time. Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Jesus is walking through through the temple here during the festival of Hanukkah, as we would call it in modern times. And during the festival of Hanukkah, what is that celebrating? That's celebrating the restoration, the re-consecration of the temple after it was desecrated. It's all about light, 
right? The festival of lights. And so John is purposely putting Jesus walking through darkness in the temple on the festival of lights because he is who? The light of the world. That's right. The light of the world. This is very intentional. But notice, the light of the world can't be seen by these particular Jews. He is the light, not just of the Jews, but of the world, but they're still blind to him. Look at verse 24 through 27 in today's gospel. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Ouch. Ouch. Is that the meek and mild, nice Jesus that you see portrayed in the, that cheesy Christian art as the good shepherd? No. Remember, he longs for our good, always. But he's not afraid to be harsh sometimes when it's for our good. And here, in this passage, is one of those times when the good shepherd is using his rod instead of his staff. Their problem, you see, is that not that they don't have a shepherd. They do. Their problem is that they don't see the good shepherd who's greater than Moses or Joshua. Because in their mind, he's on the outside. In their mind, he's flawed, although they're wrong. In their mind, he's not the king that they expect. He's not the shepherd that they expect. And so they dismiss him. Of course, we know that Jesus is the good shepherd, the, the all-righteous, and indeed the untarnished, perfect Son of God. And he's also the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, earlier this chapter, he says this, he says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, Jesus is saying a lot of things there, but one of the things he's saying is that his flock, whether Jew or Gentile, that other fold, are going to be one people because he's called them and they hear him. And so we see here that the problem, again, is that these particular Jews have no guide and no protector or leader, not because he's not there, he's standing right there in the midst of the Feast of Light, but because they're blind and they reject him. They don't know his voice. In fact, in verse 31, which isn't in our Gospel, it's the very next line in the Gospel, in verse 31, they pick up stones to kill Jesus. They're so offended by him. Jesus' words, friends, are not welcome to these listeners because they're offended. And he's come to heal the blind and the deaf, but they have self-imposed blindness and deafness upon themselves. And so that's the first lesson of the gospel to us today. And that's the gospel is a challenge. 
It's a challenge to us as followers of Jesus that to know that you're part of the faithful following the good shepherd is to be an outsider. And no one likes that. But it's to be on the outside of polite society in some ways. In order to be a witness to Christ, we have to be outsiders. Christ's followers are always a little bit of an embarrassment in polite company. Did you know that? Christ's followers are always a little bit of an embarrassment in polite company. I used to run into this in college and afterwards when working on political campaigns. I'm sure you've run into it too. Now, I will say, this isn't an excuse to be a jerk. Don't take it that way. Some people do. But if you're in love telling the truth, you're not going to be liked. And you can't tell the truth in a way that's good enough for people to choose Jesus. That's not how it works. Biblical truths are confrontational. If you doubt me, go to your next gathering at work or whatever gathering you might be at and start talking about the Ten Commandments. If someone starts talking about all the problems they have in their life and how they're a victim of their parents, say to them, well, what about honoring your father and mother? See how that goes. Or when people talk about climbing the corporate ladder, of being greedy, of getting to the next position, talk to them about, thou shalt not covet. See how that goes. Do you think you're going to be liked? Do you think they're going to applaud you? How about in your own families? Talk about how we are to be light to Christ and not to hide the truth under the bushel. You know, right now we're talking about abortion as a nation. Go ahead. Talk about the biblical fact that life begins at conception. Talk about the fact that no matter what a mother's opinion is, a child has a right to life from that point on. Talk about that. See how you're received. Those are not religious claims. Those are objective truths that religion happens to see. And they won't be liked. You see, to follow Jesus is to be disliked. I even have trouble with my own flock here when I remind them of honoring the Sabbath, when they're not here in church from Sunday to Sunday. People don't like to be confronted with that commandment. And yet, that's our duty. So, that's the first challenge, that we're going to be disliked, and we better get used to it. It's always been the case for Christians. Never be surprised when that happens to you or when it's extraordinarily virulent against you. As people treated Jesus, if you're following him and witnessing to him, they will treat you. Jesus said that. But if you really want to get the party started, go to one of those social situations and start talking about your personal relationship with Jesus. And then see how you're labeled and how much you're liked. 
Bishop J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, who I often quote because he has so much good commentary, says it this way. He says, let us never be surprised if we see the same thing today. Human nature never changes. So long as the heart of man is without grace, so long we must expect to see it disliked, to see it dislike, rather, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, since I butchered it. Human nature never changes. So long as the heart of man is without grace, so long we must expect to see it dislike the gospel of Christ. It was then, so is today, and will be until Christ comes. And then it'll be too late. So the Christian challenge is one of confrontation, of following in Christ and being disliked, but being a faithful light to God. The second lesson in this gospel is a reassuring one. Look at John chapter 10, verse 28. John chapter 10, uh, sorry, John chap, yeah, chapter 10, verse 28. Boy, I'm clumsy today. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This, friends, the second lesson of the gospel, is one of reassurance. Forgiveness and relationship with God and eternal life are yours and indeed can be anyone's who is willing to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and not be offended by the Gospel. The Good Shepherd desires that all would become part of his fold. And so this idea too seems foreign to the world. It seems too good to be true. Really? That terrible person can be a Christian? Really? And yet it is true. In fact, Everyone who is part of Jesus Christ's flock can never be snatched away from God by his enemies. For, Jesus tells us, God the Father himself protects him and guides him forever. Friends, this is the great assurance that we can have as Christians. So do you see there's a great challenge, but with it accompanied this great assurance because we need it because we need it, that while in life evil can triumph over good temporarily, it never wins permanently. That while in life personal or otherwise evil can triumph over good temporarily, it never wins permanently. You as a Christian know that and can put your trust in it. The large arc of all human history, this is true, and it's true for the individual Christian. The historic church takes Revelation chapter 7, our second reading today, to be not a place of some special Christians, but to be the place of all Christians around the throne. When we talk about those who have seen the tribulation, we're talking about all Christians, for all Christians have seen tribulation. 
In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, You will have trial and tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so, when we look at Revelation chapter 7, we're looking at the end of time. We're looking at that good triumphing over evil. For all things and creatures historically, as well as for you as a Christian individually. This is your assurance because this is your story. You see, the good shepherd won't leave anybody behind who are his own. And we as Christians have this good shepherd who appears again here in Revelation in verse 7, in verse 14, talks about the fact that we're clothed in his righteousness. Look at it very quickly with me. I'm not going to exegete this whole passage, don't worry. But look, he says, I said to him, says St. John the Divine, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. One of the things that a shepherd does, right? To provide shelter. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Now there's all sorts of fun things you could do with this, right? The fact that it's the lamb that's the shepherd. You see what St. John and, and of course the Lord behind him are doing. But look at the final line. He will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Sometimes this passage is read at funerals. You can see why. Because this is the assurance that we all have even when looking into the face of death. To enter into God's presence justified. And not just justified, but restored completely. Just as Joshua in our Old Testament passage is the good shepherd who leads God's people into the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey, so he is the good shepherd. Maybe even, if you want to think about it this way, the good cowboy that leads them. And so Christ leads us into the eternal promised land of restoration. Where every tear is wiped away, every pain in this life taken away. Think about that. That's our assurance. When you're disliked, press into it. That's your assurance. In that 1962 classic western ride, The High Country, the one old retired U.S. Marshal played by Joel McCree says, reflecting on his life to his partner, played by Randolph Scott, who's always talking about money, by the way, and always talking about respect, and always talking about his place in society, he says to him, all I want is to enter my house justified. All I want is to enter my house justified. I'll tell you the end of the movie because it came out in 62. What's that, uh, 60 years ago? That character ends up dying at the end of the film. And he looks at Randolph Scott and says, until next time. I'll see you later. 
I won't tell you how Randolph Scott redeems himself. But so, friends, it is our story that the Good Shepherd has redeemed us, has justified us, has caused us to enter into the house of the Lord justified. That's the great shepherd. That's the good cowboy. That is our challenge and our assurance that though this life may assail you, you will enter into the house of the Lord and worship him forever so long as you hear his voice and are his own. And if you're not his own, I invite you to become one of his own. Christianity is radically inclusive. All may come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.